Welcome to the Business Trendsetter Podcast, where we talk about trends and how to grow your business. My name is Manny Turan. And I'm Adam Hartung. We are Spark Partners. We help you to grow your business by understanding trends, understanding your customers. We talk a lot about finances. We talk about, but we're not financial planners, by the way. We talk about politics as it pertains to your business, and we delve into all kinds of really cool topics. Um, today's topic is kind of a, a, a topic that's on the news, and that has to do with the the raising interest rates across the board, and in particular, the interest rates of uh, buying a home, mortgage rates. And uh, I happen, I've bought many houses in my day. I'm, I'm happily renting right now, which is uh, my strategy. I don't want to be uh, tied down necessarily to, to, to Tucson. I mean, I love Tucson, but uh, my strategy is very much uh, um, tactical right now. Now, I know other people that were in the market for a house uh, nine months ago and have uh, all but abandoned the idea because the, rate, um, the rates have gone so high that on a $400,000 house, they're looking at paying you know, $3,000 on, uh, on their mortgage versus nine months ago, it was about 1700 bucks. Mm-hmm. So Adam, I wanted to start, start that conversation and I wanna ask you a question here. Uh, what was the, when did you buy your first house? 1982. 1982. And what were the uh, the rates back in the day? I paid 17.5% on a one-year adjustable rate loan, mortgage loan, um, fixed for one year, be adjustable for every year after that. And it had I had to pay two or three points up front. People, younger people don't even realize this, but back in those days, you actually had to pay somebody to give you a loan. So if you borrowed $100,000 and you had two points, you had to write them a check for $2,000 right up front and that to get the loan. And so wow. points often could run as high as five or six points that you paid on the loan in addition to the interest that you paid on the loan. So I had, uh, you know, a $95,000 mortgage, I think it was, or $90,000 mortgage on my first house. And um, I think my, my, my mortgage and interest, principal and interest on it was about $1,800 a month on a $90,000 right. house. That's insane. Yeah, there's some of these uh, uh, people you, you can watch and listen to on the news or on social media. You know, they have this really disdain for the, the mortgage industry in, in particular, uh, essentially saying that it was it's only there to service the banks and, and give the banks a way to, to, to really make more money. What do you think about that opinion? Well, I'm struck at how uh, short term oriented people are when they look forward and when they look backward. The reality was that if you, you know, I was pulling up the interest rate markets, uh, you know, looking at the Federal Reserve today, and mortgage rates have been higher, have been higher than 5% since 1965. I mean, from 1965 all the way through, you know, you got to get, to, you know, into 2005, 2006, and that period, mortgage rates were all 5, 6%, 7% through that entire period from 65 to 05. So that's, you know, uh, 40 years at least that we had that sort of interest rates. It wasn't until 2010 and the Great Recession that we saw interest rates crash to zero. And, you know, they saved down there from 2010 to about 2015, and they started a slow climb back up to sort of 3%, 4%. And it it just really... strikes me that it's sort of like people got used to this idea of free money (laughs) that, you know, interest rates should be zero and mortgage rates should be 3.75%. 
I actually got a mortgage uh, back in 2015, uh, 2016. I hadn't had one for a long time. I was living in Chicago and paid off my house. But then I moved, as you know, to Las Vegas and I had this mortgage. And I remember when they brought it to me, it was uh, fixed for seven years and then it would become adjustable. And uh, it was at 3.25%. And I remember sitting there just being amazed and thinking to myself, what I could have done in my life if I had not had mortgages that were 17% and then 12% and 8% yeah. and, you know, all those years I had mortgages at those rates. And it's why a lot of people and boomers all, we got to where we started thinking, can you pay off your mortgage? Because why you didn't want debt when you're paying eight, 10 points on your debt or, or even yeah. seven, eight points. It was kind of like, it was hard. You sit there and say, can I, can I make that kind of money consistently in the stock market? Or, you know, CD rates were far lower than that. You couldn't, safely invest the money. And, and so you would be like, well, the safest thing I could do is just pay off my mortgage. And so that was the mentality that we had for a long time. But then 2010, like I said, in 2008, nine, we had the Great Recession, interest rates crashed to zero. And that was, again, a reaction to the Great Depression. From the Great Depression back in the, in the 30s, what happened was uh, the, the economy fell, the bottom fell out of the economy. And the, at the time, they did not rate cut interest rates. They maintained interest rates. The norm then was about 5%. They maintained them. And by maintaining them, it worsened, it greatly worsened the Great Depression. Uh, a guy named Milton Friedman won the Nobel yeah. Prize in economics for his research showing how uh, high interest rates exacerbated the Great Depression. He always said, if it ever happened again, cut rates, cut rates really fast. And that's what we did. When the Great Recession hit, they would cut rates really fast. So um, the short-term view is, oh, my gosh, these rates are extraordinary. You know, with a 30-year fixed rate loan at 7, although you can get a variable rate at 5, 5 and a quarter. Um, we're really much more below the historical average for the last 40 years. And yeah. you know, we're at the low end of, of where mortgages have been for the last 40 years. So I think people just kind of... Uh, I guess when times are good, you like it and you want it to stay that way. Is that reality? I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is because we also, during that same period of 2010 to 2016, have very, very little inflation. And so that um, we, nobody quite understood why we had that what we call the Goldilocks economy, you know, where we had very little inflation, very little price increases and very low interest rates. It was a great time to be in business because you could borrow mm -hmm. for nearly nothing and try to build your business. I think now we're getting back to uh, we're getting towards a situation where we're going to probably have some inflation in the economy. It'll probably average around two and a half to three percent. And we're going to probably have interest rates that are going to be in more than the five to seven percent range. Yeah. But the thing is that I don't think a lot of people realize, and maybe this is a little bit of a call for the, our listeners and viewers to realize that, yeah, things are uh, maybe in some senses less desirable than they were five years ago uh, when interest rates were super low. But guess what? We're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. And, and I always think, and you know, you and I have talked about this, Adam, that the best time to be in business is right now, no matter what. There's so many things yeah. that are happening. If you're able to have the right mindset, and you know, we talk about trends quite a bit on this podcast, and if you're aligning your business with these trends, if you're going to where the, the hockey puck is going to be, you're going to be successful, and you've got to listen to your customers. I mean, it, it's, I'm not saying it's, it's easy, but I am saying it's, it's obtainable, and it's something that can be uh, mapped out and created. And I think that's also important that people start to get beyond the headlines when they talk about interest rates and they talk about um, inflation. So everybody uses one number. Oh, somebody came out and you know the government says that, that inflation is seven percent. 
What's baked in? How do they create that number? How do they get that number? Well, they have what they call a basket of goods and services. And they say, what's happened to the price of the things that are in this basket? And one thing that a lot of people don't realize is included in that basket is rents. The the government, when it calculates that basket of goods, it says it. No, none of us are homeowners. We're all renters. And so consequently, if you own, if somebody like my age owns a house and a mortgage is paid for, anybody out there, regardless of how, what mortgage you have, from zero mortgage to 50% value to 85 or 90% value, none of that matters because that might be the reality. But when they calculate inflation, they say, well, we just assume everybody is a renter. And so therefore, uh, everybody, they say, well, if rents go up, if rents are going up, then, then, then inflation is going way up. Whereas the, there's a very, very large part of the population for whom that's not true. For that part of the population, there is no increase. If you happen to be in California and you uh, inherited your parents or your grandparents' home, then you've had your property taxes fixed ever since Ronald Reagan was governor back in the 70s. You could be living in a house that could be worth a million dollars, but you inherited it, so it was passed on to you. There was no inheritance tax for that. You didn't pay for that. You don't have a mortgage on that, and you're paying maybe $1,100 a year in property taxes on that. But they would say that your inflation rate is 7%. Obviously, that, that which amounts to something like, I don't know, 20 to 30% of how they calculate inflation just isn't true. Yeah. And so what we have to pay more attention to are these all these terms like core inflation and some of these other inflationary terms that, that start to remove things like uh, the price of used cars because we're not out buying a used car every month or it takes out the cost of, of our mortgage or our renters. Those numbers are much lower. Those numbers are more like 2%, 3%, at the high end, yeah. 4%. And so um, then you would say, well, wait a minute, why are we jacking up interest rates so high? If, if inflation is, if the core inflation are these, these products that everybody uses on a daily basis, if mm -hmm. those are only going up at 3 4%, why don't we say that's inflation instead of 7 And it's just a bunch of decisions that are made by uh, the people who report the statistics. Yeah. And they create these things. They created them many, many years ago. And they, they're loath to change them because they want to have consistency year to year to year, quarter to quarter to quarter. They want consistency in the numbers. So they're very, very loath to try to change how they calculate that stuff. But it, what it comes back to, again, is saying, I think, uh, you know, I've been screaming ever since Jerome Powell started raising these interest rates that he's wrong. That's the wrong approach. The reason interest rates jacked way up, the reason that inflation hit was because we hadn't been able to buy a car or, or, or buy an airplane ticket. Or there's a lot of stuff yeah. we were constrained from buying for two and a half years in the pandemic. There was, some, there was an external event, right? There was the yeah. punctuated equilibrium. Absolutely. And and so what happened was there were some people who were devastated, but the people who had lost their jobs, they got government money that was handed to them. So there was unemployment compensation went up. That's more money coming in that direction. But simultaneously, a lot of people continued to work. I continued to work. You continued to work. We were self-employed. The gig economy exploded. So we had yeah. a considerably larger increase in, in, uh, in people that were getting their money, but they couldn't spend it. There was mm -hmm. just the goods and services that were available to spend were not available. You know, ships were trapped offshore. They couldn't come into the ports, et cetera. Then what happens was we started to say, well, you don't have to wear a mask. You could travel more. And then the money was there to go spend on these things. Mm -hmm. And there was a shortage of these things all the way down there to was. food. You know, there is still the even. pandemic, I talked about how they were killing small herds of dairy cows in Wisconsin because they were just dumping the milk on the ground. 
And so the, the farmers that had these, these little small herds of 30 dairy cows, 50 dairy cows, they just killed them, right? And so that was fine because there was a, we had too much milk. Well, now all of a sudden people got money. Everybody's going back. Okay, now we want more milk, cheese, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And and we don't just make a dairy cow in, in two months, right? <laughs> it's, it's more involved to put a herd of dairy cows mm-hmm. together. And so consequently, there's a, there's a shortage of milk, and the price of milk jacks way up, sort of doubles in price. But those are not permanent things. I mean, what that what I'm getting at is that you're quickly catching up now. We're quickly seeing some of these prices come down. And at the same time, we're seeing our income start to come up. And we're starting to see this all rebalance again. So yeah. there's not a lot of what I would call, you know, built-in inflation pressure like we had back in the 1970s. And, you know, back when we had cost of living increases baked into union contracts and, we had, uh, and, and government payments. A lot of that doesn't exist anymore. And so those pressures are subsiding and they're subsiding very quickly. Um, the second thing is never in the history, ever in the history of America, have we raised interest rates this quickly. Even when we raised interest rates from 1975 into the, to 1980, they went a little bit slower than that. Now, we had mm-hmm. some big jumps, though. If you go back, like what's happening now is nothing compared to what happened. I started my undergraduate education in 1975 and the federal funds rate was five and a half percent. By the time I graduated in 1979, it was 17.5%. Wow, that's right? crazy. Due to a guy named Paul Volcker. So we saw it go from 5 to 17. That's 10 points. What I'm getting at is that we've gone from 0 to 4. We would have to go from 0 to 10 to do the equivalent of what mm-hmm. happened in the late 1970s. Now, when Volcker did that, it did cause a tremendous recession. And it made it very, very difficult to buy houses. I mean, buying a house now is a is a dream compared to that. Right. So like I said, when I went to buy a house in 82, it was extraordinarily difficult to qualify for a loan, extraordinarily difficult because interest rates were so high, 17% mortgages. So, you know, it was very, very difficult. Um, it's not that difficult now as it was yeah. back then. Also, yeah, think, uh, are, are, go, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I think that, you know, uh, business owners and people that are, are running a business or executives tend to have this, I wouldn't even call it a myopic myopic vision. It's more like a singular vision of that. They they latch onto these sound bites. They latch onto that one number, and they don't realize that running a business or running your life really is not. You don't latch onto one thing. It's it's almost like sailing. If you're going to sail, you got to worry about a lot of things. The what you're sailing, the where the wind's blowing, the quality of your sail, how you know who's driving the boat, like all these elements. And it's a very complicated thing. How the waves are. Are, are reacting that day and you can't just latch on. And, you know, we talk about trends a lot and we talk about a multitude of trends because it's, it's just not one thing that's going to uh, identify and, uh, you know, take you off course. It's going to be a series of things that will take you off course or conversely, a series of things that will get you to the other side in, in a much better place than you started. And that's why it's really important to do scenario planning and do this sort of trend casting and not just jump from headline to headline. Uh, Newspapers are not the primary way we get news now, but back in the days of newspapers, there used to be this old phrase that, you know, dog bites man is not a headline, man bites dog. Now that, that is a headline. Well, what were they trying to say? They were saying be, be salacious, you know, be titillating with what you did in order to get people's attention. And now we're at the extreme of that with social media, where people put all kinds of salacious and titillating statements out there in order to try to get eyeballs. But in the middle, you still have a, a, a traditional media, such as, you know, the CNNs and the ABCs and those kinds of people. 
And the problem is they have become more salacious and more titillating. If you went back to Walter Cronkite, if you, uh, you know, we just recently had that uh, latest uh, uh, mission where we went to the moon and, the, and it came back. And, and so they were running some excerpts of what the news media had said when we first sent the Apollo missions up into space. And you see these very, very serious stone-faced men, you know, with their glasses with one arm in their mouth, and they're talking about, you know, how, how serious all this is. No humor to it at all. No, no, no excitement, really, in their voices. And now here's a, a lunar mission that's come back, and a lot of people kind of ho-hum. Who cares? That, I mean, wow, 1960s all over again. But there's all this excitement and, oh, this is great. Oh, this is wonderful. And the arms are flashing and all that. And so it's what I'm getting towards is the traditional media has really become that way. Um, you know, to Rupert Murdoch, when Rupert Murdoch left Australia and bought his first newspaper in England, he was really, really despised. And part of it was because he had the son and people uh, and the son had what they called a page three girl. And this is I'm not making this up when page three girl was a was a topless girl. It was a picture of a girl with her breast hanging out. And it was in every single newspaper. So I'm not talking about something that was for men, uh, adults only. This was the daily newspaper. And, and so Rupert Murdoch's point of view was, hey, I just want to get eyeballs. And if I get eyeballs by showing naked women, I'll do it. And, you know, he was despised for it. But it, that started this movement of, of, well, just get salacious. Just say extreme things in your headlines to get people's attention. And so yeah. that makes us as a people out there, as business people, if you jump headline to headline, you got to realize you're getting pushed and pulled by people who have one objective. And that's just to capture eyeballs for that moment in time to try to sell an ad. And, yeah. and that's that's you cannot plan based on that. No. And, you know, of course, with the advent of social media, that's been exacerbated to an extreme amount. And uh, there's so many uh, different uh, tributaries of conversation happening online about certain things um, that it, it's just it's hard to tell what the truth is. There's a guy on social media. His name is the Liver King, Liver King. I don't know if you've heard of Liver King. I don't he think is so. this totally jacked up guy that purports to have gotten to this amazing, you know, physique, eating nothing but organ meats, a lot of them raw, by the way, organ <laughs> meats and, uh, you know, raw beef and salmon eggs and, and basically all carnivore diet. And he was asked many times whether or not he was, uh, you know, juicing or using steroids. And he always said no. Right. He had this big cult following. Uh, and then ultimately, about a month ago, there was an email that was leaked between him and one of his docs talking about what cocktail of uh, steroids they were going to uh, you know, use or whatever. And it all exposed it through a wide open. And now he was actually forced to kind of give an apology. And, and so that's just one example of how crazy things are these days. To kind of tie it back to this real estate bit. BlackRock, which is, uh, you know, this giant private equity firm, is, is being accused by the masses of, quote unquote, buying every single house they can they can see they can buy, you know. And if you look at their website, they're like, clearly, we're not buying every single house that's available. So just an example of how that ties back into the real estate side. Well, I think, again, let, let, you got to realize from. In the 1960s and 1970s, people used to say you couldn't lose money on real estate. And that was because when the, babe, when the 
all the people came back from World War II, and uh, they and the industrial era was in full swing, and we're in we're out manufacturing and manufacturing a lot of stuff, and we've got these uh, men came back and the women came back, and, and and now it's really booming and people are having a lot of babies. Then they just had this great housing boom, which built the suburbs, went from cities to suburbs and exurbs, and everybody thought, well, gosh, you can't lose money on housing. Well, now no, that's not true. Heck, look at the poor people that just you know housing in Detroit that or Toledo and and other and towns even. Chicago. Chicago still hasn't recovered back to what housing prices were in 2006, 2007. They haven't recovered. So you can definitely lose money on real estate. So when people say, well, I can't afford a house, I'm, one of the questions I ask is, well, where is it? You know, sure, if you're in Silicon Valley, that's a tough, tough place. San Francisco is a tough place. New York City is a tough place. Um, you obviously want the, the, the house to be probably where you, you work, but, you know, sometimes people want the house to be where their family is. And they say, well, I grew up in, you know, this area, the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, and my parents have a house they bought in 1972, and they paid, uh, you know, maybe $100,000 for that house. And now I want to buy a house, and the same house now costs $900,000. And the answer is, that's, that's true. That's what's happened because yeah. the job growth has allowed that, uh, income to go up in that area and push prices up. That plus a shortage of houses because the people who have their houses, there was no real there was no real estate tax increases on their houses again to do to Prop 13 in the Reagan administration. And so uh, the governorship, the Reagan governorship in California. So what I'm trying to get towards is that the price of a house and the mortgage and all that also depends a lot on demographics. And where are you located? And, you know, if you want to be a gig worker, if you want to be self-employed and start your own business, the question becomes, can you start at some place where it's less costly? We saw a big rush to Texas in the last five years, and that was because it was far cheaper to own a house in Austin or San Antonio, Texas, or the suburbs of Dallas or Fort Worth. That was far cheaper than almost anywhere in California. And so people said, look, I could go there. Uh, you know, and, and, and they, they went there and they bought houses. Now prices have gone up. They're still not like California. Um, same thing happened in Nevada. In Nevada, you could go buy a house for a, a quarter or a third of the cost of a house in California. But people started realizing that was true. And they said, hey, if I'm a bricklayer or if I'm a carpenter or if I'm a printer or if I'm I'm uh, uh, in the service industry, say working in a restaurant, I could make the same amount of money living in a Vegas or living in a Houston that I would make in Los Angeles, but my cost of living, my housing cost is dramatically lower. Yeah. And so we saw people move there. Now those costs, again, those housing costs have started to go up. So what I'm trying to get towards is where, where can you live somewhere where it's cheaper? That's another thing you need to think about. Is there someplace else yeah. you could go and, and, and thrive as a person? That, and then the last piece of this on the demographics gets to the fact that we have a lot of houses today that are going to end up empty. And I say that because boomers are dying. So you have literally you have people in some of these major metropolitan areas who have houses that they've owned for 30, 40 years, maybe even more. And when they die, who's going to take over those houses? You know, are the children going to take over those houses? In some mm -hmm. cases, yes. But in many cases, no. And so when that housing stock comes onto the market, it, it, it will depress prices. It'll pull prices back down, right? Uh, I hate to say this, but, you know, you're, you're, if you're in your 40s, it may not help you much because people are living longer. But if you're in your 20s, what it says is that by the time you're in your 30s, we will see some changes in the price of housings just of due to people dying. Literally, yeah. um, I was talking to a person that, that recently, and uh, they live in the Bay Area, and they have a five-bedroom, five-bedroom condom uh, apartment in San Francisco, in Pacific Heights, because they rented it in like 1980 or 1979, and it was rent controlled. 
So their rents haven't gone up. They had three children. They still have this five-bedroom apartment in San Francisco. They also have a condominium in Fort Lauderdale. And that's because uh, the woman, her parents owned this uh, Fort Lauderdale condo. They died and she inherited it. Then they also have a house in the Napa Valley area that they bought 20 years ago and did some remodeling on. They have three homes in very expensive places, mm-hmm. three of them. Yeah. And so they're, they're again, they're probably going to die in the next 15 years, just statistically. That's what's likely to happen with them. Then that's going to put three properties back on the marketplace, mm-hmm. right? And so that's part of what we're going to see start to change this market. Now, if you're 25 and you want to get married or if you're 25 and want to have children and you say, look, I, I, I want a house, I want an independent dwelling structure that I can be in, and I, and I need to do it now because I want, to, I want to start a family now, then what I'm saying isn't very helpful, right? But what we can say is that, that the demographic trends are going to mean that when you're right. 40, it's going to be a lot better to get a really nice house than it is today. The trends yeah, are going to hold off right. in your advantage. You know, and, and then I would say, what can you do? Could, could you, are there places you could live, make a good living, uh, do what you want to do with your life mm-hmm. and, and have a more affordable housing environment? Yeah, and, and everything's interconnected, right? We talk about the idea of uh, the gig economy, asynchronous life, mobility is causing these, uh, these uh, nomads, these digital nomads that can work anywhere. Matter of yeah. fact, my little town here of Tucson, Arizona had a, a big marketing ploy about about a year ago, um, basically asking and putting it out there on social media and other uh, news outlets for people to come to Tucson to live in Tucson. And, uh, you know, now that they can work remotely, but it had the, un- the, the consequence, the unintended consequence of causing housing prices to go up. You know, you're yeah. having somebody come in from California that that sold their house their you know, their little beater for 800 grand and they come to Tucson and they. They can buy a house, a house cash for four hundred, the equivalent. Now they've got another four hundred thousand to invest in the in the community, and it sounds all great and dandy. But overall, it it ends up jacking up the uh, the prices of other things too, which yeah. is again part of that that sailboat analogy I mentioned earlier. You're going to have these these uh, you know ever changing elements are going to change the direction of of what you're doing in your life. So when I was blogging from 2010 uh, up into 2020, as we're going through that blogging piece as well as then starting the podcast with you, Manny, I, I would I was a big advocate for the United States borrowing money, and so the Obama administration had uh, raised a lot of money, sold a lot of notes, and there were a lot of conservative people who said, "Look, debt's bad, debt's bad, debt's bad, and it's not good. We're we're going to strangle our children with all this government debt." And I would say. Look, at interest rates of nearly zero, this is when you want to borrow the money. And the reality is that we tend to think of borrowing money when interest rates are really high. Like, oh, I need money, so I want to borrow. Well, interest rates are high. So the, the, the reality is these things work inversely. And so, you know, it was really good to borrow money from 2010 to 2016. Now, it's still probably a good idea to borrow money, even though you're, you expect your interest rates to be very, very low, like 2 3%. It's going to be more realistic that they're going to be five seven percent for a mortgage and, and similar uh, uh, asset backed types of loans. That's still a good rate because you should be able to go off and invest in yourself so that you can you can move up the pyramid in your company. You can you know invest in your company that you own. You can invest in your career and your and have your pay go up and it should go up more than five percent per year, right? And at the same time, you should be able to put it into a house that could go up you know four or five percent per year, and so that'll work out okay. So. I wouldn't. You don't not go forward with your life because you're afraid. 
you should be saying, hey, look, this is not extraordinary. You know, go ahead and go through your life. Again, look at the people that are my age that we went through. For the first 20 years of my home ownership, you know, it was always like I'm looking at an interest rate of, of north of 8% on any kind of a mortgage. I didn't use that as an excuse to not buy a house, right? Now, I did build up some equity. I'd roll in the equity, you know, and then unfortunately, interest rates kept going down from 18% mortgages down, like I said, down to, to 7, 8, and even 6. And but and that, that's what I'm trying to say is don't let these things get in the way of doing what you want to do to grow. Invest in your family, invest in your life, invest in your business. And don't expect to sit down and wait for interest rates to return to zero. Yeah. That's unrealistic expectation to have. So we can plan and look forward and say we'll probably have interest rates We'll probably have some inflation in the future because we still got a lot of people with money. We got a lot of retirees, got people spending money. So, you know, interest rates, I mean, inflation will probably return to something like 2%, which is where it was for a long time. Um, but I don't expect that inflation to be 7% for long. I don't expect it to be zero. I expect it to go to 2 to 3%. I expect interest rates to remain at the same rate as inflation plus a little bit. So we're talking about 3 to 5% on the interest rates. And that's probably what we'll look at for the next decade. And that's what we'll probably get there. We will get there within the next 12 months. Um, and so, again, I would say plan on that. That's the best forecast, most likely to happen. Uh, unless we get, you know, something, you can always get another uh, uh, pandemic and things that will make a difference. We'd have to reassess. But don't stop. Don't stop. There's no reason to stop growing and investing today. Very well said, Adam. Yeah, there's lots of elements that uh, create a successful life. Uh, of course, having a business, growing a business is one of those. Uh, you know, we talk about a lot of tools that we have in uh, at our disposal. A lot of those tools are uh, just eyes wide open on what's happening in the economy, eyes wide open when it, as it pertains to trends. Um, you know, we've talked about our course many times, Think Innovation. It really helps you to, to open your eyes to the way uh, to really change the way you think and look at things in a different way. I know that it's had some pretty big uh, effects on people that have turned their business around by realizing sometimes you have to uh, to put one thing to bed or you know kill one idea in order to go after another idea. Um, so with that, Adam, it was a great conversation today. What are the some parting thoughts for our viewers and our and our listeners? Pay less attention to big headlines like we're in a recession, recession is coming, recession is looming, screaming headlines like, oh, Fed raises interest rates another quarter point. Oh, the interest rate's gone from zero to five percent in seven uh, steps in less than one year. That's a world record never happened before. Don't let that determine your long term investment profile. Don't don't try to to guess uh, based upon headlines. Develop your scenarios, adjust your scenarios and invest in those things that are gonna grow and never take your eye off the trends and predicting the trends. Very well said, keep your sail unfurled and uh, power forth. Uh, have a wonderful uh, holiday season here, Adam, and we'll talk to you soon. Keep well. Cheers.